0: Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Rima Katz. Today, we're going to unravel the dynamic world of open banking, exploring the opportunities and hurdles that shape the financial landscape globally. And we're going to dive into the distinctive challenges within the U.S. market. My guests today are going to guide you through the intricacies of open banking, shedding light on the evolving regulatory environment and what it means for financial institutions and consumers. Joining me today is Amit Shastri, Senior Director of Product Management at WorldPay from FIS, and James Wester, Co-Head of Payments at Javelin Strategy and Research. They're going to go into the current state of open banking, examining the transformative power it holds and the opportunities it presents for innovation in financial services. However, it's not all smooth sailing. Open banking participants face a myriad of challenges, from data security concerns to interoperability issues. But fear not, because on today's episode, we're not just highlighting the obstacles, we're also discussing strategies to navigate them successfully. Amit, to start things off, can you give us an overview of the open banking space?
1: Absolutely. I think that's a great question to kick off this conversation. But before I answer the question, I just want to clarify some terminologies that are used in the context of open banking, uh, but they carry some distinct meaning. The terms are like account to account or A to A. They're also called RTP or real-time payments and, and open banking. And there are differences between each one of them. So particularly between account to account and open banking. Account-to-account payments rely on a legacy banking systems and often involves manual user steps, resulting in suboptimal user experience. Uh, Whereas open banking is also not just limited to the bank's technology, but can be seamlessly integrated into the other apps with a stronger focus on conversion rates and experiences. Account-to-account payments tend to lack interoperability across regions, whereas open banking payments have potential to be integrated across cross-border payments. So therefore, all open banking payments are account-to-account payments, but reverse is not actually true.
2: If I can just weigh in real quick, I think that's absolutely a fascinating start for this. And the reason I say that is because one of the problems that, that we have on the research side, on the analyst side, is often wading through a lot of phrases that are thrown around as though they're interchangeable or a lack of very precise definitions. And, you know, the the saying to every man with a hammer or to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. To a research analyst like me, one of the big tools that we have that we seem to sort of throw at everything is taxonomy. What do you actually mean when you're talking about these things? And I think that's one of the problems that we have had in this space is, again, or at least from an analyst standpoint, is that that lack of clarity and that You know, a lot of companies like to just sort of throw out that most recent buzz phrase, open banking being a clear example of that sort of very buzzy term. So I like the fact that, you know, let's define what we're talking about before we go forward, because I think it's a really good way to start.
1: Absolutely. And I think the the further nuance to this is like open banking means different things in different parts of the world as well. So it obviously started with uh, in the EU with PSD2 which talks about two kind of services called uh, the Payment Initiation Service, which is useful for making payments, and the Account Initiation Service, which is useful for account verification, balance, checks, and transaction history. In the particular context of United States, the open banking refers to the API-based connectivity that enables sharing of bank account and balance information for the shoppers to, by linking their bank accounts and the u.s shoppers are particularly now getting familiar to linking their bank accounts as part of the checkout process and then leveraging that connection once it is done to make payments again and again whereas rtp if you if i come to if i may come back again to the point of you know taxonomy rtp rely is basically real-time payments which refers to effectively the underlying infrastructure that enables Instant or near instant transfer of payments between the two parties. RTP operates almost 24 cross seven, including days and nights, weekends and bank holidays. So an open banking effectively is like the overlay of the services on these real time payment rails, which is, which is potential to revolutionize payments for consumers, for retailers, for small businesses, corporations and governments alike. So we at Worldpay believe that open banking is a key trend which will accelerate and shape the payments and banking landscapes in meaningful ways. Now, answering your question directly, what's the landscape of open banking around the world? We can see that there are six over, according to our global payments report, there are over 60 real-time payment rails that are alive around the world. Open banking accounts for nearly 525 billion dollars of e-com transaction value just in 2022 alone and is expected to grow at 13% CAGR through to 2026. Some of the key successes of open banking around the world are let's say PIX in Brazil which is a scheme it's a payment scheme driven by the Central Bank of Brazil and also UPI in India which was launched in 2016 by NPCI and the Reserve Bank of India. Both these have had tremendous successes. And as you can probably believe, you know, in India, in September alone this year, they've done over 10 billion transactions just in one month for open banking. So we can see how if the market and the regulators get behind it, the potential of open banking is phenomenal around the world. And here in the United States, We've got no regulatory obligations, but the industry is already moving in that direction and kind of driving open banking adoption in the U.S.
2: Yeah. And, and I, I think what's really interesting about that, the way you identified both the market-led versus the regulator-led, I mean, there there are arguments to be made for both. I think one of the things that's been really interesting is the discussion about the regulator-led areas So India, fantastic example. And I think that whenever I'm talking to U.S. audiences and just give them the, the sheer scale of how much has been done by India in the last 10 years to bank, I believe it's, it's the equivalent of basically two U.S. markets have been banked in the last decade, which is just a a phenomenal step forward. But one of the things that you have to look at in a lot of the markets where the government is leading in open banking is there isn't anything else that's being replaced. And I think that's one of the things about the market led approach that's been interesting in the US is I know that when we had, had talked earlier, you used the word fragmentation. I really, I, I think that's a great way of looking at it. There are just so many financial institutions and there are so many different ways that they can connect using, you know, different rails and the, the market led approach that we have in the US. The fact of the matter is that it works and it works very, very well for most consumers. Um, there are edge cases, there are edge cases in both consumers as well as use cases. So I do think that that the differences between either the regulatory led or the market based, you know, there are arguments for both as far as which one works. But what we are seeing is that both of them are coming together to say, yes, open banking, this open banking model does work better. And that is where we need to be going, regardless of how it's being led.
1: Absolutely. And not to mention there are other drivers as well of why open banking has been popular and successful around the world is, is from a consumer perspective. Today's consumers really want improved innovative shopping experiences and they are, they want instant gratification. We all live in a now world and, and, and open banking kind of resonates with that real time money movement and faster payments related to, uh, you know, landscape. So I think. Consumers want greater access to their financial data and they're able to share that if they are getting you know, improved services and better financial products or reduce the cost of their financial products. So, so consumers are also pushing this quite a bit. And from a merchant perspective, this is absolutely slammed down for them because the cost of in a high in a in a low growth, high inflationary environment, merchants are under extreme pressure to reduce cost of operations. And because open banking transactions uh, happen. Outside of the traditional card rails like Visa and MasterCard, there are no interchange in scheme fee costs. And therefore, from an enterprise perspective, our customers are asking this because that's potentially saving them you know, millions of dollars every year if they are able to display some of the credit debit volumes over to open banking. And from a world pay perspective, you know, we do not discriminate between payment methods. We offer a plethora of payment methods to our customers because ultimately You know, we want to drive financial inclusion. We want to offer optionality to the shoppers. And open banking is one of the key now as a payment option or a data aggregation or a data sharing mechanism that enables consumers to be successful. And when consumers are successful, businesses are successful. And that's what we are uh, striving for every day.
2: Yeah, And I I think both sides of that equation, both the merchant and consumer, I think what's fascinating here is just the way that both sides have become savvier about payments. You know, if you look at what consumers are looking for in terms of payments, maybe a decade or more ago, it was, I want to be able to pay. I don't really have many choices, but I'm going to, we talked a lot about top of wallet. You wanted to be that one payment mechanism that the consumer was going to choose because they really didn't feel like they had many choices. There might be some differences in terms of rewards, or there might be some differences in terms of affinity for, you know, the face of the card, but there wasn't really much in terms of choice or at least conscious choice from a consumer. And the same goes for merchants. Merchants have become much savvier, much more uh, informed about not just cost, but speed and convenience and a lot of other things that go into the types of payments that they want to accept. And they've actually now Begun to expect that that type of choice and and that guidance from their from their providers in payments, and so I think that's one of the things that's been so interesting is just how much both sides of that equation have become much more informed.
0: And you know, you both spoke about what open making looks like in the U.S. I want to dig a little deeper into the role you know that ACH RTP and FedNow are playing in the U.S. open making space. Ahmed, I'll start with you first.
1: Yeah. As I said, open banking is basically overlay of services on, on the underlying real-time payment rails. Here in the United States, we've got ACH, we've got RTP, we've got wires, and we've got FedNow. So we've got four different rails in the United States on which we could actually build an open banking ecosystem. But before I go into that, I just want to kind of zoom out a little bit. And I just want to say like, open banking is a trend that is, as we've seen, ha- is, is trending around the world it's proliferating really and growing really fast. Uh, But in the United States, it's just kind of picking up the ground, but this is not the first time any specific payment trend hasn't made into the United States just yet. If if you look back to the digital chips on credit and debit cards, you know, that has taken a while to get to United States. Then the contactless checkout came in and then the wallets. So while the rest of the world jumped on the payment trend and the bandwagon much more sooner, it has always landed to the shores of the United United States a little slower than the rest of the world. Uh, But when it actually came, it really got going. So open banking is one such trend, and we expect that open banking or account-to-account payments will continue to grow in the United States at about 11% CAGR until 2026. So it presents a significant opportunity for for merchants, for consumers to kind of drive open banking around the world in in the United States. So coming back to the question around ACH, RTP, and FedNow, those are like, and, and wires, those are like four rails that are powering money movement between individual businesses and financial institutions and each of these payment rails serves a distinct purpose and offer a meaningful benefit to the users so let's touch upon ACH first this was set up in 1970s and is governed by nacha and this is like the fundamental backbone of of money movement in the us over the years nacha has evolved ach has evolved into kind of different you know payment options depending on speed and efficiency so these are standard ach next day ACH, and same day ACH. But ACH, and ACH also enables both push and pull kind of payment methods. These payment methods, although are not real time, they are batched and, and they are batch processing payments. However, the cost of these payments are, are low and therefore are very effective and ideal choice for large scale, repetitive transactions. And these typically take anywhere between one to three business days to settle so they're not real time, but they are real workhorses in the United States today. In terms of RTP, those are, are fairly new and, and newer payment rails, which is set up in 2017 and is governed by the clearing house. RTP only allows like the push payments. So what, what that means is a consumer can only push the payment from their bank accounts. And a lot of the bank accounts in the, in the United States can actually receive an RTP payment as well. So if I looked at the stats from the clearinghouse, about 60 to 70 percent of the U.S. DDAs can enable push RTP. What I mean by that is that they can actually send those RTP payments, but a majority part, like over 80 percent, can actually receive an RTP payment. So if you still see as as a viable underlying payment rail, RTP is still not as ubiquitous as an ACH rail's. Wires, again, they've been around since eighties, governed by, you know, clearinghouse for chips and Fedwire is governed by 12 federal reserve banks and two payment systems. But wires are fundamentally used for high value cross border and urgent domestic transfers. And they typically facilitate funds between banks and financial institutions. They are, they are, they are costly and, and incur high fees compared to both RTP and ACH rails. And more recently now, FedNow has joined as well. So FedNow is is the most newest real-time payment rails in the United States. They are live as of July of 2023 with 41 financial institutions and 15 payment service providers. Volte is proud to be part of an early adopter of FedNow. We would want to enable FedNow for our larger financial institutions to kind of drive the real-time payments in the United States. So we've got like two rails now, RTP and FedNow, kind of competing with each other and effectively doing credit push transfers and are real time in nature. So all these rails, as you can see, have got distinct are essential for a modern financial landscape because they cater to diverse payment needs and have diverse different speeds. They've got different cost structures. And as a pay as a business, we have a large variety of our customers. So when we build our pay-by-bank offering in the United States, we believe that we will need to kind of cater for all kind of our customers and therefore we'll build a product that meets and sits on top of all these payment rails in the U.S.
2: Yeah, and and going back to the idea that we have a... From a merchant standpoint, a savvier audience for this type of discussion, uh, an audience that understands payments better than they really ever have. And if you look at the needs of, say, really enterprise merchants, what they're trying to get out of, of payments, you know, for a long time it was we just need payments. We need money to flow. And now there are so many considerations based on things like speed of settlement. Cost is obviously an issue, but it's not always a primary issue. There are things like convenience for your consumer, that user experience. Um, How easy is it for your your customer to pay and whether they want to jump through the hoops that are necessary if they need to sign up for a new payment mechanism? Those are the things I think that are really interesting right now as we see so many choices is that – Vendors are going to a much sharper, more savvy merchant, saying, "Here are what you, here are the things that we offer." Uh, and the merchants are coming back saying, "Well, these are the things that we need." And so that ability for so vendors like WorldPay to sell into those merchants—they're having to be—they're having to. Both educate some of those merchants that might not be quite as savvy on what those different options are, but also craft products, craft offerings to those merchants that really meet their needs. So definitely an interesting time on what we can see in terms of development for, for payment mechanisms and, and the rails that are out there.
1: Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of for a payment method to be successful, it needs to reach the broadest possible consumer base. And and at the moment, you know, RTP and FedNow, while they are like newer and shiny and a lot talked about in the ecosystem, the ubiquity of that in the United States is still not there. So absolutely, you know, so at the end of the day, shoppers don't really care. They, we should not be talking about RTP or ACH or FedNow. It doesn't matter to a consumer. For All I need is to be able to buy a, you know, groceries at the end of the or at the end of the week or pay a bill. I don't really care as a consumer what rails this is, but but, but that's for us as a, as a P, you know as a payment service provider in the US. We will solve that complexity for the consumers for our merchants so that they have the broadest possible reach of the payment method in in the country. And these complexities of ACH or RTP or wires or FedNow is hidden from the consumers. That's for you know business from a PSPs like us to kind of solve for that complexity.
2: Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's sometimes a, a challenge for those of us in the payment world. You know, we're fascinated by these things. We think the difference yeah. between ACH and RTP and FedNow, now, we think they're fascinating. But the truth of the matter to merchants and to consumers is all they really care about is their commerce. They're not really caring about the payment so much. And so it is sometimes a challenge for us to either craft products that are understood by both sides or understand that our job is to, as you said, take care of all of those complexities and make just make the whole process easier.
0: Speaking of that, you know, let's talk about the challenges, but let's also talk about the opportunities of open banking. Amit, what are you seeing in this space? And then James, I'd like to get your thoughts on that as well.
1: So as with any trend or with a new payment option, there is always pros and cons, and open banking is no exception. So let's quickly touch upon the challenges of this in the United States. So the, the biggest challenge in this space is bank fragmentation. The U.S. banking ecosystem is structurally fragmented because of its scale and size. So, you know, we've got over 12,000 banks, which are com- consists of large banks, small banks, community banks, credit unions, whereas in you know countries like Canada, it's, it's double digits, right? So, so the scale of challenge in the U.S. is far, far significantly higher than, you know, most countries in the world. Plus the legacy banking system that supports smaller financial institutions are not really equipped to support real time and clean data sharing capabilities. So that's the, that's a significant one. Then the, from the onset of that, it then leads to kind of fragmentation or you know, standardization of APIs, which are basically used to kind of connect to these banks. Now, because there are no standards necessarily set, each bank can implement their connectivity to enable, you know, sharing of data or enable payments in a, in a slightly different way, which means we could have, you know, tens of thousands of potential ways to kind of connect to the bank account, which means it increases significant complexity of how will you build an ecosystem where you have full connectivity across 12,000 banks in the U.S. So I think because there are no single standards, the cost of integrating, managing, and maintaining these API integrations are going to be significant uh, for the players in this space.
0: Just to jump in, because I know, Amit, you're covering a lot of challenges, but on the topic of bank fragmentation and, you know, this lack of API standardization, James, are you seeing the same sort of, like, factors happening?
2: Yeah, absolutely, we are. I mean, that is a huge concern. There, there are there are those who could argue that bank fragmentation is actually a feature, not a bug. That there are banks for every need. That there are credit unions that service multiple types of customers, and that too many deposits at too few uh, institutions is actually actually a structural risk. So, you know, it protects against them. It does make it a little bit more. Of a challenge, especially for vendors in the space to be able to, to sell into, into those different banks because there are so many of them. And the same thing with API standardization. You know, when you see a regulatory standard that's been put out by a governing body or by a regulatory body, sometimes those don't often hit every need. And so making changes to that can be a very long, slow process. It also tends to cut out maybe some of the smaller competitors who would want to anytime, who would want to enter a space anytime you see any type of regulatory moat. It's great for incumbents, but it's not so good for startups. So you see the idea of APIs that are competing on quality or competing on some other standard besides just being the thing that everybody has agreed to as being the least objectionable standard, which is often how API standardization to regulatory bodies ends up being, uh, is it's just the the least controversial uh, solution. Sometimes when you go that way though, you do end up losing out on some of the more innovative or maybe some better solutions that that um a startup or a smaller company might want to bring to market. So we're kind of seeing both sides of it. I do think here in the United States, because of that fragmentation, because of the lack of standardization, the chances of seeing something truly innovative are probably better, but it might take longer and it might be a little bit more costly. And to Amit's point, it might be a little bit more of a concern for financial institutions and their vendors while we wait for all of that to happen. So it could actually push off some of those benefits. And I think that's a a, a genuine concern. Yep.
1: Uh, now going further into kind of the, the challenges, uh, because open banking is an ecosystem that connects consumers, banks and merchants, there are legal and ethical implications around sharing the sensitive customer data with multiple third party providers and therefore raises complex question around data ownership, data control, as well as who's then accountable, liable and responsible for this data. So I think as an industry, we need to solve for some of these legal and ethical implications as well to kind of assuage any concerns from a legal and ethical standpoint. Because this is a faster payment, faster payment also means a kind of quicker fraud in a way. So as A 2 A payments, the risk of authorized push payment frauds is also significant. Uh, so one of the or uh, and in this case, it's a bit, bit of a challenge in case of fraudulent world is open banking transactions are irrevocable. So once you actually make the payment, you cannot recall back those payments. So when there are fraudsters or, or, you know, bad actors into the ecosystem that can actually trick the consumer in, in kind of authorizing a push payment of their ba- out of their bank account, that's where this becomes a bit tricky. And we need kind of protections from a consumer perspective to kind of protect from such bad actors in the ecosystem and the all ecosystem participants will have to kind of play in that space.
2: To jump in, I think that's absolutely, you know, those are all facets of the same problem that the legal implications, the potential for fraud, data sharing and privacy concerns, all of those are things that you know, we're going to have to solve for sooner rather than later. It kind of goes back to the last discussion of, you know, things that are going to uh, potentially cause problems with, with. The eventual adoption or the speed of adoption, this is definitely one of those things where, you know, a a merchant or a vendor of some kind saying, hey, share your your data with me. I will control it and use it for your benefit. Then fraud happens and they turn around and say, well, that's not really our concern. You shared your data with me. That's not going to fly, not with regulators and definitely not with consumers. And so those are the things I think where uh, we do need to find some some solutions for that very, very quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean data security and privacy concerns, you know, from a research from a Deloitte says that two third of the consumers, you know, are worried about identity and over half of the consumers cited the misuse of data as their top concerns. And therefore, people are extremely sensitive and making sure they want to share the data, but they, they are, it's absolutely safe and secure to do so. So I think yeah. as as an ecosystem, you know, you know, we need to solve for data security, data privacy, data sharing to make sure this is safe for consumers to actually use and pay for.
2: And I think we have to be aware. Oftentimes, consumers say things about their privacy and the security, and then they do things that are completely opposite to their own security you know you ask consumers what's your number one concern and they will say data privacy security things like that and then you look at reports on what's the number one password password or, you know, one, two, three, four is the, the number one PIN code. So those are the types of things that, unfortunately, we on the vendor and technology side often have to do, which is protect consumers who won't protect themselves, who then look to us and ask us, why didn't you protect us when they're not doing things to take care of their own safety and security? So I think it's a very, it's a very interesting discussion on that. And again, it's, it's going to it's going to be one of those issues that we need to solve very, very quickly.
0: I see, like, you know, regulation is very top of mind right now, um, specifically when you are when you are talking about this. Amit, um, like, can you provide any insights into the regulatory landscape here in the U.S.? And, you know, especially with an emphasis on the recent CFPB announcements.
1: So on the regulatory side, as you know, moving on, you know, it is, as we said, you know, repeatedly establishing regulation to protect ecosystem participants, to address the challenges around security is extremely important to kind of realize the benefits of open banking. And in, in July of 2021, President Biden ad- significantly advanced this by directing CFPB to kind of allow consumers and businesses to switch their bank accounts or financial institutions and also enable using new financial, new innovative financial products. So open banking really, you know, is a simple idea where consumers are the ultimate owners of their financial data and they can actually choose to share the data with whoever and however they choose. The legal basis of open banking actually flows from Section 1033 of the Dodd-Frank Act, which requires banks to make this data available to the consumer in a, in a usable format. So this was advanced quite significantly further on by CFPB and on 19th of December, uh, 19th of October, sorry, this year, CFPB issued a notice of proposed rulemaking to advance the implementation of the frank act. Now, what that means is basically this law would basically allow consumers to have control over their financial lives and gain new protections against companies misusing data. The, the personal financial data rule basically Enables the consumers to get their data for free. So effectively what this means is the, this financial data, which is consumers own data is made available to them through no extra charges, through digital interfaces that are safe, secure and reliable. They also have the legal right to share their data with whoever they choose to share it to kind of get improved services or lower cost acceptance. And it also enables the consumers to kind of switch the providers If they are dissatisfied with the service offering or they get a lower priced products elsewhere. So I think this is kind of the the legal or the kind of the core basis for consumers to be in control of the data to kind of drive, you know, the open banking adoption around in the in the US. This proposed personal financial data basically protects the both the consumers and the firms. So third parties, and and they are protected through third parties, cannot collect, use, or retain the data to advance their own commercial interests by targeted or behavioral advertising. Instead, the third parties would be obligated to limit themselves to what is reasonably necessary to provide individual requested product. It also gives meaningful consumer control. It gives people right to revoke their access to data as well. So if you know, as soon as the access is revoked, the access should end immediately and then the data should be actually deleted. It also protects, you know, the institutions from actually collecting data using risky practices. So things like screen scraping, which is, which, which can be done, but you'll have to store username and passwords to doing so. So this ruling kind of prohibits the storing of username and passwords and, and enables through an API OAuth based uh, you know, data collection practices. And last but not least, it is also about providing detailed technical standards to ensure that they are fair, open, and inclusive uh, so that everybody benefits from this. So from a and from a timeline perspective, uh, the, the CFPB is actually collecting and consulting with the industry on this, and we have the opportunity to put it into the ruling until December of 29th this year after which the CFPB will consider to add those change suggestions into the final ruling which we are expecting to be published by fall of 2024 and then a couple of months after that final ruling this gets implemented in practice and it again gives banks almost six to four years to kind of adapt to this new kind of regulation based on the size of the banks and so on and so forth. So, so I think CFPB is doing a phenomenal job of kind of regulating this space, making sure the ecosystem players behave and play by the rules, and also protect consumers from malicious practices and data security sharing related concerns. So a lot of work uh, has happened uh, and is happening and it will continue to happen in this space around regulations in, in open banking.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, to take the flip side of that, which we all want to make sure that consumers are protected. And I think that one of the good things that prompted this is the CFPB does see the value on open banking. There's a clear movement by the CFPB to say, hey, what can we do to make sure that this move towards open banking protects consumers? So things like getting rid of screen scraping or ensuring that there are open standards so that everybody can understand what's being collected. That's all the good stuff. The concern with regulation always, when when you're talking about innovation, though, was the unintended consequences. How quickly can the CFPB move if there is something that actually – if financial institutions look at this and say, you know what, there is too much complexity. The rules that are out there are actually, again, aimed towards larger financial institutions that have the compliance and risk and regulatory uh, wherewithal to, to comply. In other words, those large financial institutions that have it baked into their organizations, they can comply with it so it actually hurts maybe some of the smaller institutions. If they're not carved out or if there are some concerns that, you know, they just don't have the ability to comply. So can the CFPB be be, (laughs) a lot of bees? Can the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, can they actually be fast enough? in saying, all right, some of the things that we're trying to do from a rulemaking standpoint are going to actually hamper innovation. So those are the things that I think we need to be really careful about. And we need to be engaged as an industry with the CFPB to make sure that, yes, they are protecting consumers. They are making sure that the financial institutions participating are doing the right things. But also, are we are we making sure that innovation is allowed to uh, to flourish under these rules? And I think that's going to be an interesting balance that we all need to be paying attention to.
0: You both have covered a lot of ground thus far. You've laid the current view of the open banking landscape. You spoke about the challenges as well as the opportunities that we're seeing in the space. As we look ahead, you know, what's the future of open banking? Ahmed, I'll start with you first.
1: Yeah, today's open banking is just tip of the iceberg. And I certainly don't have a crystal ball to predict the future, but what I can actually say is what are the efforts that we can or what are the things that are happening in this space and will continue to happen over the next few years. So one clear area where we'll see traction and action is around fragmentation of API and those will unify into one common standards at, at least at a country level, if not, you know, between two countries. And that will be closely also aligned through ISO 222 to improve kind of in, the insights through data, better uptime, and conversion rates. Then we, we touched upon regulation and policy making. So I think, you know, this area will see con- significant industry action and in regulators and uh, the ongoing enhancements in the areas of consumer protection, security, privacy will continue to be evolved as, as we go into the future the next thing that you can definitely bet on is open banking will become more and more feature-rich so there is already work going on around variable recurring payments uh which will enable person to business use cases across number of you know industry and verticals and then open banking is not just about also evolving it's not just about sharing your banking data But sharing maybe all your financial data and now I what I mean by financial data is sharing your mortgage your savings your pension. So you move out of just from a bank to kind of wider suite of product uh, financial data and products. And that's the terminology in in the open banking world is called as open finance. So you kind of use not just the banks and your bank account, but you use your pensions, insurance and other financial products to kind of build the full financial footprint of an individual consumer. And now extending that even further, you if you add other non-financial data, things like your utility consumptions, such as water, your electricity or your Internet of Things related data sources. This is like, you know, an extremely gold mine of, you know, building innovative products using all these data sources together. So open banking, we believe, has a has a significant impact with the financial industry and has a potential to be a huge transformative force. To me, this is like a smartphone moment of financial services. and And this is really the start of the journey of kind of building innovative products using data. World Pay will continue to play its role to advance open banking, not only just in the United States, but around the world. And we will build or enable our merchants so that with tools that they need to create a value for their consumers that all win in this world. And we create a better financial inclusive you know, ecosystem where everybody wins.
2: Yeah, I, I think that... Um... You know, that, that vision of where our open banking is going is, is very, very compelling. And I think one of the things that's amazing about this or fascinating about it, is, you know, I agree that standardization is going to take place. I do think that the push towards standardization around something like ISO 20022 is sort of inevitable at this point, if only because we all see that more standardization in that, at that level of the tech stack, being able all of us to communicate on a standard when it comes to, to sharing data makes a lot of sense. But what's interesting is above that, those compelling products that I was talking about, that ability now to build things, some of which we may not even be able to see at this point, those embedded finance applications or use cases where, again, sharing all of this data allows for more personalized service. You know, better financial tools aimed at things like insurance or retirement or any number of these financial services out there that might depend upon, you know, where I am located. So my my geography or uh, what my risk tolerance is or what my age is or, you know, what I'm trying to do for my children's education. You can think about all of these different places where we as consumers spend a significant amount of money buying a house, buying a car, educating our kids, buying insurance, all of those are financial services that have existed in really in silos across line, you know, in, in individual lines of business within a financial institution or within a merchant that we might deal with. And now having that ability to share that data in a way that we can now start unlocking different ways of of investing our money more wisely or applying for, you know, a mortgage or a car loan or any of those things. I think that to me is absolutely fascinating and and I I think that when we look back I I love that comparison by the way to to a smartphone moment you know I think that when we look back to say pre-2007 world before an iPhone and we look at a flip phone and we think well those were powerful but man we had no idea how powerful that phone was going to be I think the same thing applies here we have seen what some type of data sharing has allowed us to do from just an ease of payment standpoint. But that next step, I think we're going to look back on and say, we had no idea just how powerful open banking and that data sharing was going to be towards financial services and the whole financial industry.
0: Thank you both so much for sharing your insights and your perspectives. And thanks to everyone for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe and stay updated on the latest Payments Journal episodes. And don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues.